The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of James. James chapter 1 is where we'll be today. Uh, Hopefully you've had a good week. Uh, Today we're going to look at trials. We're going to examine trials. Would you say that uh, true or false... Uh, trials are a part of life. True. Okay. True. I think all of us, whether we're believers or not, would say trials are a part of life. Um, Kevin, I'm getting a little bit of a ring up here on the stage. I don't know if it's monitors. But uh, trials are a part of life. I was in Lowe's the other day, and I was, I was in the plumbing department, and I was picking up some, some 10-foot pieces of pipe, and I was carrying them, and I wasn't really paying attention to uh, kind of where I was going, and, uh, and the guy was helping me get the other things I needed, and I was kind of looking this way as I was sort of standing there, and I wasn't really walking. I was just kind of taking a step or two, and along came another Lowe's associate, and the first guy that was helping me said, watch out there. Don't take Lucky's other good eye. Um, I thought that a little strange. He said, uh, well, we call him Lucky because he only has one eye. Well, that was kind of funny. Lucky. And, uh, and, and I think that's kind of the, the, the slant that I want you to see today is that everyone is affected in some way or another by trials. We can laugh at them. We can give each other sort of jovial, creative names and make fun, poke fun of things, but trials are, are a part of life. Um, I want you to see this and as we walk through this text together today. I, we're in this series, Do Something, and today I'm just calling this sermon, I've titled this sermon, Count It All Joy. This seems out of place when we talk about trials, but James here tells us, Count It All Joy joy. We're going to look at this and and how we can do this as believers because of Christ. Uh, Let me read our text and then we'll jump in and go from there. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Life is filled with trials, as we've already said. I I just think over this room and the people seated in this room. I'm not going to call names, but in this very room, there are people who are are, are, are right now uh, going through chemo. There are people in this room that are right now caring for ailing and aging parents. There are people in this room right now that are awaiting marriage and are counting down the days to, to being married. There are people in this room today that are dealing with all sorts of things, financial and money issues. In this room, there are people in this room who have wayward children and all sorts of things. In this room, there are trials of many kinds represented here. And I would again say to you, I've said it like 400 times already in just the opening of this sermon, but life is filled with trials. It certainly was the case for these that James is writing to. Let me just remind you, James is the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. He is writing to a congregation that is, has been dispersed and scattered because of persecution. 
He's no longer face-to-face with his own church members, but he's writing a letter that will be distributed throughout these churches that are distributed and dispersed all across the land. James is the little brother of Jesus, and he has a pastor's heart that he saw in his older brother. Life's filled with trials, and it was filled with trials for these church members that are scattered. Some of the trials that they were facing, we see as we look through this short letter to them, is that the, the believers there that James is writing to, they were suffering from, pers- from, from poverty, for one. James, several times in the book, writes about the poverty that's there. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is pointing out here that there is a distinction in many of these cultures between those who are extremely rich or extremely wealthy and those who are living in extreme poverty. There's not a whole lot of in-between. If you wrote, turn over a, a page or two, perhaps in your Bible, to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, again he writes... If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There was a distinction here between the the rich and the poor. There were the rich in society, and there were also a few that were rich within the church. But there was a distinction here, and they were, they were not getting along. And most of the church members, the believers that James is writing to are poor. They're suffering poverty because they've been dispersed and in new lands, and making a living is quite hard. They're also suffering persecution. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, again on that theme of poverty, verse 6 says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the the honorable name by which you were called? He's pointing to the, the fact that in this culture where many of them are living, those that are wealthy are taking advantage of those who follow Christ. They look upon those who follow Christ with shame and they are slandering the very name of Christ and taking advantage of the poor. All of this has everything to do with, most of their trials have to do with, directly related to the fact that they're exiled. They're no longer in their homeland. That they've been dispersed out into places where it's not familiar to them. They're having to learn what it is to follow Christ in a place that is not home to them. They're having to figure out how to make a living and how to provide for their families and how are they going to worship their God without bringing on more persecution than is necessary. How are they going to do all these things faithfully in following Christ in a new and a strange land? James particularly here calls these trials of many kinds. He's pointing here probably to the fact that these were not just trials that were being suffered due to them following Christ, but they were trials that just come with life. I mean, aren't there sometimes trials that just come with life? I mean, they just pop up. The word here is that that we just fall into them. You're not expecting them. No one plans on trouble. 
right? No one sits out that day and says, you know what? Beautiful day outside. Be a great day for a flat tire. Nobody does that, right? Nobody plans to run out, of, run out of gas. Nobody plans to have to make a trip to the doctor and get bad news. Nobody plans those things. There are sometimes trials that just come with life, living in a fallen world. And this is what he's pointing to here, that sometimes life just happens. There's sickness and loneliness and raising children that won't, won't mind or won't be respectful. Loving, loving people and having them go away from you because they've either departed from you and abandoned you or they've departed through death. You've lost loved ones. Putting food on the table. Unmet expectations. All these things are trials that come with life. And I would tell you, as I develop this for you, that there are trials that are just part of the story here in James. That their lives are filled with trials. To which I would say to you, are we any different? Are our lives any less filled with trials? What about, uh, you say, well, I, I would say to that, I would answer that, no, they're not. You would answer that, no, they're not. Because you, you hear about all these trials of the people that are following Christ dispersed, written to in the letter of James, but they really don't touch home with you because they're not your trial. But you know your trial, and you know how devastating it is to you. You say, well, wait a minute. I I thought if you came to Christ, then everything was supposed to be hunky-dory, and everything's supposed to go your way. Well, that's what a lot of prosperity preachers would love to tell you, love to get you to buy into. There's a prosperity gospel out there that is damning people to hell. It is a false gospel and it is blasphemy and it should be rejected at all costs. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that if you, if you trust Christ and begin to follow Him, then everything goes well for you. I listened to, um, I listened to the, uh, one of the people associated with one of the, the winning horse yesterday talking about how there was just so much good that was going on in, in this horse that it just meant ah, good things are going to happen. And yes, California Chrome won yesterday, but it has nothing to do with a philosophy that holds true in all of life. I want to share with you um, a piece that's rather long. It's a couple of pages in this book, but I want to share this with you because I think it's worth it. We look at trials and we realize that trials are part of life, and, and, but we always think, well, if I can get past this trial, then maybe I'll be set and maybe my trials will be over. This was written by Daniel Doriani uh, in his commentary on James. And let me just read this for you. I think you'll enjoy this, so hang with me. He says, A high school senior lives in tension. He is, at long last, king of the hill, the privileged one. And yet, classes are still long and boring. Homework is still banal. At home, he still faces curfews and chores. He looks around and asks, Is this what I've been waiting for all my life? There must be more. I'm tired of school, tired of books, tired of teachers' dirty looks. I'm tired of my room, my mall, my activities. I can't wait to get out of my own uh, get out on my own to do a thousand new things. When graduation comes, then my trials will be over. So our young man goes to college. He's free, but he is a chemistry major, perpetually in the lab and working part-time to cover his expenses. By his senior year, he has a serious girlfriend. They began to think about marriage, but haven't been together long enough to be sure when he gets a job in Dallas, 800 miles from his sweetheart. 
who will be teaching third grade. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. They work harder than ever to master their their new professions, but they are lonely and tired of kissing their telephones goodnight. They decide to marry. Gazing into each other's eyes, they say, we will be together forever. Soon our trials will be over. The honeymoon comes and goes. They set up house in a small apartment. On his first day of work, he showers and starts to shave, but he can hardly see himself because the stockings draped over the mirror are blocking his view. How, he, how, how she spends this money. What more? She still expects him to demonstrate his love with flowers and dates. He thinks, what do you mean you want tokens of love? I married you. Why do you need tokens? Of course, he causes a few trials too. At the table, he eats as if he were back at the fraternity. When he sleeps, he thrashes about their bed as if he were reenacting an Olympic decathlon. Eventually, they sort things out. That trial is over. Now they want a baby. But one year, then two years go by without success. And then just as they prepare to meet with physicians, she conceives. They say, now our trials are over. And all the parents in the room laugh. (laughs) I will not recount the trials of pregnancy, the nausea and mood swings. Let us travel forward for eight months. They have a healthy baby girl. Mother and daughter leave the hospital to spend their first night at home. The baby is asleep and the parents lie in bed thinking, Our marriage is strong. Our baby is home. At last, our trials are over. They drift to sleep. In an instant, though, they're awake. The baby is crying. Why? She's dry. She's not hungry. She's crying for no reason whatsoever. Parents in the room, amen. So the trials of parenthood begin. In every stage of a child's life, parents tell themselves the next phase will be easier. When we can sleep through the night, when the baby can understand us, and when we can understand her, when we are done with diapers, then it will be easier. When they are old enough to go to school so mother can have a little peace and quiet. When they become more independent, when they can drive so we no longer spend endless hours chauffeuring them to soccer games and clarinet lessons. Yes, when they, when they can drive, then our trials will be over. When they go to college and can stop fussing about curfews, we can stop wondering where they are. They may never come in, but at least we won't know. Then our trials will be over. Work is no different. Trials never end. Things never settle down. If the economy is thriving, the company is growing, and our work is respected, there is too much to do. The trials are overwork, the, the trials are overwork and exhaustion. If the economy is cool or there is not enough business, then the income is down and jobs are in jeopardy. The trials continue after retirement. We miss the camaraderie, the respect, the friendship of work. We have too much time on our hands. We wonder if we care too much about golf or fishing. Health issues surface, and we may wonder if we laid aside enough money to fund the next 20 years. From childhood, from our, from our childhood home to the retirement home, trials are constant. We need this message in James to be a reminder to us that there is not one stage of life where we will get to where trials will not exist. You say, well... Boy, I sure am glad I showed up for that today. Trials exist. They're part of life. Let's say amen and go home. And let's just draw the curtains today and go in and take a nap because we're all depressed, right? 
What's the purpose in trials? Why do Christians suffer? If God's on His throne, this is a, problem, this is a question you will hear all, over and over again. If God's on His throne, if He indeed is sovereign, then why do Christians suffer? I want you to notice that in this passage we're in today, James is writing to who? To brothers. And that word there is, is not exclusively male. It includes men and women, brothers and sisters. But he's writing to fellow believers. Why does God let them suffer? Why do we endure trials? Well, that leads us to the rest of our passage. And this is where I'll dive in at the very first. He says, first off, count it all joy, my brothers. How do you think that sounded to a group of people who were suffering? How do you think that sounded in the ears of those who were in the middle of trials? Don't you think that when they, they got this letter from James, their old pastor, and it was familiar to them, and they looked forward to it, and they couldn't wait to hear what he said, and they were so suffering and so under trial that they just wanted him to say something that would bring so much hope to them, and he says, hey, consider it all joy, brothers. Don't you think that probably sounded a little crazy to them? Don't you think that it sounded a little bit probably insensitive? A little bit irrational maybe? For James to say, hey, put a smile on your face. Like it. No pain, no gain. You ever been around somebody like that? Something bad happens to you and they come right up to you and the first thing they say to you is they quote this verse to you. Hey, Consider it all joy, brother. And you want to punch them squarely in the face. Right? I mean, you want to you go from this Christian love between brothers to now you want to say, shut up. Right? I, I want you to notice that sometimes saying the right thing at the wrong time doesn't help anybody. This is true. This is true that God does have a plan in this, but sometimes saying the right thing at the wrong time doesn't help anybody. In fact, it hurts. It makes things worse. Think about when Jesus comes to the place where Lazarus has just died. Mary and Martha are there and they come rushing out and Jesus, if you'd have been here, but our brother's dead, Jesus doesn't immediately look at them and say, consider it all joy, sister. What does He do? He weeps. He weeps with them. Sometimes the best thing that we can do with a brother or sister that's in a trial is to weep with them. To say nothing at all. To be there with them. To pray with them and pray for them. To get anything that they need. Just to love them. Just to weep with them. Sometimes that means so much more than anything else. Amen? But James is not commanding here a silly or a fake emotional happiness. He's not telling them to enjoy their pain. He's not saying to them, hey, get some popcorn and some milk duds and a large Coke and just sit back and enjoy the show. He's not saying that to them at all. Instead, what he's calling for is he's calling for what some translations would say, pure joy. That word pure joy. Joy is not talking about that it has to be no other feelings experienced at this time other than joy. Instead, it has to do with an intensity. It has to do with an unalloyed or an unmixed or a wholehearted joy. 
That even when the trial comes and you do feel sadness over it, and you do are, you're, you're angry at times, still in the middle of that, you're choosing to push back that in favor of, even though I'm sad, even though I don't like this, I will wholeheartedly rejoice in this. And I want to show you why as we continue to go through this. Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the word here in our text, consider, I told you last week that, that James can, he, it contains more verbs, more imperatives than any other New Testament writing compared to its size. More frequently, James uses verbs. And the verb here that I want you to see is consider. This is the imperative. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on your feelings. We live in a feelings-based society, don't we? Well, yeah, I know I'm supposed to rejoice, but I don't feel like it. I know I should love my neighbor, but I don't feel like it. I know I should, but I don't feel like it. See, we live in a feelings-based society. And this word here has nothing to do with feelings. It is a, it's a conscious act of the will. If you go back to that Hebrews passage, not only do we learn there in Hebrews 12.11 that this discipline is not enjoyable for the time, but it's producing something beyond it, we see that Jesus modeled it. Hebrews 12.1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that's, that, which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance. There's that word, endurance, perseverance. The race that is set before us. Here's what I want you to see. Looking to Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. He's seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. You say, how in the world? How in the world are we supposed to rejoice in this? James, how are we supposed to consider it all joy when we're going through these trials? Because for the believer, we know that in trials, they're coming from a God who only has our good in mind. Jesus models it in the fact that when He's going to the cross, He looks at the cross and knows that it will be the most painful thing that He or any other human will ever experience. Not in the sense of a physical pain. There have been others that were crucified. There have been others that have endured physical pain that probably would equal or even surpass this physical pain. But in bearing the very wrath of God, no one, no one has ever had to do that in the way that Jesus did. He knows this is not going to be a pleasant set of circumstances. This is not something that we look forward to and we get the app, the T minus zero, and we have a countdown to this day on our phone. We look forward to it with, with joy and anticipation. He knows this is a dreadful experience, yet for the joy that's beyond the suffering. He endures the cross. The apostles did the same thing in Acts chapter 5. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and, and then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
These men who had just been beaten for following Christ and threatened walk away rejoicing. Paul and Silas in Acts 16, when they've been arrested and they're in the prison, they're in the stocks, in the dungeon. About midnight, what are they doing? Are they in the stocks saying, I thought Jesus said this was going to be easy. Acts 16 tells us that they're in the stocks. It's midnight. There are prisoners all around them and they are found praying and singing hymns to their God. Job gets the bad counsel of his friends like what I've just shared with you. Consider it joy, brother. And Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. He sees it as an opportunity to trust God and to rejoice even in the middle of severe suffering. It, was, it, was it Horatio Spafford that wrote it as well? Is that right? When his, his wife and children had gone on before him on the ship across the sea and had gone down in the ship and all perished there. And he comes later on and when they get to that place, the captain stops and lets him know this was the place where the ship sank and took your family for you. And out of that experience, Horatio Spafford wrote, it is well. It is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll. I, can, I just imagine him standing there on the deck of that ship watching those sea billows roll, knowing that they had taken his family from him, yet he chose in that moment to rejoice and to trust his God. It is well with my soul. How do you do that? Verse 3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is not the primary command or the primary verb or imperative of this passage. I've already told you that that was consider. It's a reckoning. It's a choosing to rejoice in this. It's a wholehearted, pure joy choosing this. But this is, if this is not the primary command, then in some ways this is a secondary command. This is like the instructions as to how, you, how, how do you consider it all joy. When he says here, Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I want to ask you this, and it's right in the text. I've read it for you at least three times today. What do trials produce? See, we want to say trials produce maturity. Trials make us mature. And in a roundabout way they do, but he says there's a, there's a stop in between there. Trials don't produce maturity directly. Trials produce steadfastness. Trials first must produce this perseverance. What's the first thing that we do when we begin to encounter a trial? How do I get out of here? Right? How do I get out of this? I've got to get out of this. I've got to rid myself of this circumstance. In reality, James here is not calling us to that. In fact, he's saying that in multiple times, more times than not, in the middle of trials, instead of looking for our way out, we should bear up under them. That we should stand under them. That we should not try to get out from under them, but we should hold the weight of them. This perseverance doesn't come any other way. Think about it. How do you get perseverance if you don't go through a trial? I mean, if those of you who work out or, or do any type of CrossFit or anything, how do you get perseverance without going through the workout? 
How do you know how many burpees or how many ground overheads you can do unless you go through them? You don't get it any other way. Stop and consider that maybe, maybe, I I know there are trials in this room that that I have not begun to experience and, and I don't want to and you wouldn't want me to. Maybe there are some trials in here that, that it would be better for you to be able to get out from under, but let's at least acknowledge that the Word of God tells us that in most cases, trials are given to us so that we might stand under them. If you're indeed going through a trial, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too soft to say most. Because if God is on His throne and He's given you this trial, can we not endure it knowing that He's good and that He is our strength and He's building in us something that is beyond this thing? Stop and consider that maybe the wrong thing, the disobedient thing, is to flee. Have you ever known anybody that was always fleeing? The moment something got hard, they walk away. you ever known anybody like that? It's their job. Things begin to get a little tense on their job. They begin to have a little bit of accountability or maybe there's a little bit of tension between a coworker. and immediately they don't, they don't try to work things out. They don't try to fix some things. Instead, they just begin to look for another job and they bolt as soon as they can. Churches are filled with people like this that the minute things begin to go wrong in, in a church over here, they bolt and they go over here to another church. And many churches today are unhealthy and dysfunctional because people have not stayed under the trial. When, when you know someone like that who has never stayed, they're always fleeing, what are those people like? Aren't they immature? Aren't they usually about themselves? Aren't they usually selfish, self-centered? Aren't they usually petty? Aren't they so easily offended? Do you want to be like that? But is is, is perseverance the same thing as maturity? We've already said no, it's not. But the only way you're going to get to maturity is if you stay through perseverance under the trial. Verse 4 says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, this is where God's taking us to. And yes, He's sovereign. He speaks and Universes, the universe happens. Stars are hung in place and waves continue to crash. This is our God and He could could instantly in a moment say to us, be like Christ. But instead He doesn't. Instead He takes us through this process because He knows that in the end we're going to be like Christ. But right now, we're so far from it. But in His love for us, He takes us through trials to teach us to be like Christ. To teach us to struggle and to learn where we need to put our trust. How many of you want to be mature? Just lift your hands. How many of you want to be mature? All right. If, if you did not raise your hands... 
then you really need to be mature, okay? Because you just missed out on that. Someone says to you, I think I am mature. No, you're not. Um, how many of you want to be mature? Yes, we do want to be mature. How many of you want a trial? Now lift your hands again. How many of you want a trial? Let's see one or two. But there's not many hands going up. We want to be mature. Oh, but I don't want a trial. You know what that's like? It's like saying, man, I want to be fit and lean. I want to be strong. But I don't want to work out. I don't want to watch what I eat. I want the results, but I don't want the work. There's no other way to be mature than to, than to persevere when God sends us trials. We will only get the benefit of the trial by responding in the right way. Some of you are wondering, you look around and you see, and nobody point fingers because, again, we all need to be mature, but you look around and you see some believers sometimes and you think, how could they be so petty? How can they be so immature? How can they be so narcissistic? How can they cause so much pain? Many times, many times, here's, here's the reality. Many times you're looking at someone who is, has been convinced they are a believer when they're not. They're a lost person. But there are cases, and this, this text is, is, it points out that this does happen, that there are people who are believers, but because they've not responded to the trials sent to them in the way that they should, they've never matured. They're immature baby Christians, not because they've not sat under the Word of God. Many of them have sat through service after service after service and heard the Word of God preached and expounded to them, but they've still never matured because they've never responded with perseverance when life gets tough. The only way we will have this maturity happen in our lives is when we respond with perseverance. God has promised to sanctify us, therefore He is loving us by sending us through trials. Now do you see it? When, now when James can say to them, brothers, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. He's not saying, put a smile on, fake it if you have to, just like it. Instead he's saying, brothers, sisters, this trial that you're going through is not fun. It's not fun for the moment, but rejoice in the fact that your God loves you so much that He is willing to hurt you in order to make you what He's promised to make you. That could. That should cause us to rejoice. When it, in the Scripture here, the text says in verse 4, He's going to make us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. One of the questions I have when I read that is, Okay, I want that. I want to be perfect. I want to be complete. I want to be lacking in nothing. When will that happen? Well, the answer is whenever the trials stop, right? Whenever the trials stop, it means that God has said, you're good. Okay, so when will the trials stop? That's what we want to know. When will the trials stop? They will not stop in this lifetime. If you're thinking that somewhere around the age of 45 or 50 or so after following Christ for a number of years that all the trials will stop. The kids will leave the house and they'll be gone and you'll, man, this will be great. Just talk to some 45, 50-year-olds in here that are empty nesters. There's still trials. You think, well, man, it's going to be so great when I can finally retire and kiss this job goodbye. 
Just talk to the retired people in the room. Trials still exist. Yeah, there probably are some freedoms, but there's new trials that come. The trials are not going to stop in this life, but listen to this. Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. There's that word, perseverance, steadfastness. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The reason that we can have joy in the midst of trials, this is what I want you to take away. The reason that we can have joy in the midst of our trials is because God is not out to harm us. If you're here today and you're a believer and you're trusting in Christ, He's not out to harm you. He's out for your good. And He will stop at nothing to see you to be complete and perfect and lacking in nothing. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we talk about trials and God, it's easy in this room maybe to talk about them, but God, in the living through them, it gets tough. God, I pray that you'd let this truth today in this passage sink deep into us. Lord, help us to follow your example and to, to look past the trial and to see the joy that is before us, that one day there's coming a home with you in the new heavens and new earth. And the trials will in that day be over. There will be no more weeping. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more dying. There will be no more exams. There will be no more deadlines. There will be no more having to provide. There will be none of that. Because every need is met in you currently. But in that day, it will be realized in a whole new way. And God, I pray that we would, in the middle of the trials that we will suffer in this life, God, that you would Give us the grace to look past it and to see the joy that is before us and to rejoice that we are yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity just to respond, um, to think about what's been said. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial and, and maybe what you're wanting to do right now is to just to get out of it. And maybe, maybe you're wrestling with this and maybe you're on the verge of walking away from something when in reality, you've sensed all along and now you see in the Word of God that it's time you bear up under it. It's time you respond to it in the right way to put the, put the, put the effort there by the power of the Spirit living within you and let God transform your character as you trust and lean on Him. Maybe you're here and, and that's you and you just need to right now just don't even stand up when Ethan tells you to stand. You just sit and you just, between you and the Lord, just talk and commit that to Him. Ask Him for the strength needed. Maybe you're here and you need, you've got some brothers and sisters in this room and you know that for you to stay and to persevere under this, you're going to need some support from some brothers and sisters. Maybe you want to go and grab two or three of them and ask them to come and to pray with you. And you can come up here and kneel if you'd like. You can go to our prayer room, which is out that door and to the left. If you want to go out that door and around to the right, it's fine. But our prayer room's there. There are brothers and sisters that would love to pray with you. 
Maybe you're here today and this joy that we talk about, you know nothing of because you're not a believer. You've never trusted Christ. And today I'd love to invite you to turn away from trusting in your own condition and your own circumstances and creating your own future and to to just throw it all on the mercy of Christ and trust Him. To repent of your sin and trust Christ. I'd love for you to come and do that. You can come and, and see me. I'll be seated here on the front. If you're here today and you say, this is the church I believe God's leading me to join, love to talk with you about that. Whatever it is that God's leading you to today, respond in obedience. Let's worship God as we respond to his word. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.